Hello and welcome to the Beyond Resilience Life podcast, a show about life adversity, how to overcome it and transform your life. This is your host, Dr. Lidiana Garcia, a licensed psychologist in Los Angeles, California. And even though my hope is to deliver information that can be helpful for you to overcome adversity and transform your life, it is not meant to be a substitute for being diagnosed and treated by a licensed mental health, medical, and related professional. Season 1, Episode 3. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the official trauma introduction episode. I am so excited to introduce one of my mentors to lead this episode and guide us with her wisdom. Marina Compian is a licensed clinical social worker with over 15 years of experience across a variety of settings. She attended the Occidental College for her undergraduate degree, and she completed a master's degree in social work at UCLA. She has been trained in many evidence-based models for treating trauma, including mindfulness approaches, attachment, EMDR, and the one that I am currently working towards certification, which is the Trauma Resiliency Model. In fact, she is a master trainer and a certified practitioner. She has worked serving the homeless population, at-risk youth, children and families, LGBTQIA, low SES, adults, and in medical facilities. Today, we will explore the overall concept of trauma, how it impacts the body, some of her go-to skills to manage it, and ways for people to make new meanings out of it. Without any further ado, let's dig in. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to have here one of my mentors, Dina. Thank you for joining us. And we're just going to go straight to it, straight to the question, okay? okay? So please tell us a little bit about you, like I know about you, but I want the listeners to kind of have that firsthand. Sure. So I'm a bilingual, bicultural, licensed clinical social worker. I'm in private practice. I've been in clinical, uh, I've been doing clinical work for about 15 years now. Maybe it's getting closer to 20 now. And I work primarily in medical settings. So I have been working in community clinics for over 15, 20 years. And uh, what I do there is provide mental health services alongside the medical care that is being provided with our health providers. And I also do, I also have a, a small private practice where I see clients as we normally do in private practice. As you know, I'm a trainer for the Trauma Resource Institute where I teach and train two models, which is the trauma resiliency model that is for clinicians mm -hmm. to support um, reprocessing of trauma and also the community resiliency model, which is shared with community members and stakeholders to support resiliency and help with dealing with stressors within a community as well as catastrophe relief and disaster. That sounds awesome. And that's how I met you. It was through yes. the trauma resiliency model in the first yes. training. You were one of the trainers. And I was like, so first of all, I was like, so happy to have a trainer that was Latina. Because I think is I think, honestly, you were the first one that I've been like, has trained me in a model that I really like. And it's like a Latina. So it was like a looking up to you. And yeah, we clicked there. So yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. It's, uh, it's important work to me because I have been Primarily, you know, as a Spanish speaker, you are called on often to provide services to people in a community where they have previously not had access to a Spanish patient. So it's been really important work for me. And I've loved it also because the model itself is very approachable and accessible. And I've been able to be instrumental in translating the model and the material into Spanish. And it's what I do every day. So I think it's important that we offer that to our community. And it's felt like my, 
you know, my heart's work to do. Part of why I love the training too is I love meeting new clinicians and you know, getting to know amazing people like you who are doing all kinds of other great work. So I'm glad that we ran into each other at that time. Yes, I'm so it. glad. Yes, yes, yeah. And to add a little bit more about you, what continues to inspire you? Because I know working in the trauma field can be very challenging. So what continues to inspire yeah. you and to do your work? You sent me the prompts of the questions, right? And I saw that question and I thought, what a great question. And to be really honest, when I thought about it, the work is my clients and other clinicians. Because as you know, I do consultations mm-hmm. with other clinicians. Yeah. And I often hear about, and you know, it gets shared with me, some of the amazing work that's happening around helping people, supporting people healing from trauma. And that's really inspirational to me to hear other people's stories, not only my clients' stories and how they come through very difficult life situations, but also um, other clinicians who are doing this work. So that's very inspirational to me. I think that's what really keeps me going. As you know, I think we work a lot. Yes, <laughs> we, work we do. A lot of hours and we we invest a lot of our time, but it's, that's very inspiring to me. And I think the other thing that I, that resonated for me when you asked that question was research. As a social worker, I never thought that I would be really into research. And I still don't consider myself someone who would take on uh, doing research, but I love learning new, you know, what the research is telling us about how emerging therapeutic methods and modalities are really helping people heal from trauma in you know, to their core, really in neurobiological ways. So yes. the research also inspires me a ton. Yes, I'm super excited about the research and how it's showing all that connection. And that's why I wanted to kind of create this podcast because I want to pass that information along to mm-hmm. people that might not have that access. And, and again, because most of the clinicians that are trained in models like that are English speaking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and I try my you. best, you know, again, some of that research is very hard to read through and decipher. The books that we're reading about neuroscience and polyvagal theory, all of it kind of can get very complex. So I try my best to sort of distill it down to um, what the message is, what the takeaway is, and then share that. And I actually do that very often with my clients where I say, you know, there's a new research study that I read about that talks about this. And I think they're sometimes surprised that I would share that with them because they're like, no one ever thinks about telling me about research, right? Mm. Uh, But I really, I think I connect a lot with my clients and my patients that way, because I share with them what excites me and how it applies to them. That's great. Yeah, that's great. And going along that line, how do you define trauma? It's such a big word. And you know, actually, what's interesting is like in my in my daily work, I probably tend to stay away from the word trauma Mm -hmm. uh, because even the word itself can be kind of traumatic and very loaded, right? And so I really just define it as overwhelming stress, right? In our trainings, we talk about how trauma can be defined as anything that is too much too fast or also too little for too long. So anything that we experience in our bodies, in our personhood, in our nervous system, as being too much, as it overwhelms us, it's hard for us to respond to it in the way we would ideally like to respond to it. That is what can become very traumatic for us because those are the experiences that stick with us because we aren't able to really exercise our own responses, ideal responses to those situations. And I think what you're saying is so important because I even had it from a friend recently. I was like, oh, you're working with trauma. She's like, wait, trauma for me is like a when I think of you working with trauma is like with sexual abuse and, and accidents and I'm like, okay, yes. And 
mm-hmm. any kind of emotion that got stuck and all that. And she's like, oh, then we're working with the same. I'm like, yes, we are. But yeah. I think it's important because people then, if they experience, like, I love how you said it, the too much, too fast, or too little for too long mm-hmm. experiences, they might be like, they might minimize. This is not something problematic or, you know, mm-hmm. it's important to know that it doesn't have to be such a huge loaded word. Right. On a daily basis, we experience a lot of that. We can. Yeah. yeah. And I think that explanation also helps really bring to mind a lot of early childhood experiences. I think when people have a hard time sort of connecting to that younger self that maybe was dealing with overwhelming situations or things that were just beyond their younger you know, capacity to deal with, right? The idea of having it be too much too fast for someone that age can really help someone have a little bit more compassion for their younger self who was dealing with a lot of things. Yeah. So that is a nice way to sort of also induce the idea of like developmental trauma, right? But, you know, I think once you start sort of kind of doing this work, you realize that we're all trauma therapists. Yes, yes, that's completely true. From that perspective, then you see how many small events, Mm -hmm. you know, seemingly not traumatic events can actually contribute to building, to having a traumatic response in our body. Yes. And going along, wow, you're like connecting all the questions, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. How does the, this experience's trauma impact the body? Well, I think it goes with that definition that I just said about too much, too fast, right? How it impacts our body is it dysregulates us. We are from the very start, from the time we are born, sort of wired to kind of out of the box deal with adversity, right? So we're, we're made for that, but we're also made to do that with support right? With that kind of connected, bonded, nurturing support that allows us to kind of grow in to that, our ability to be resilient and, and deal with adversity. But when we are dealing with too much too fast and how that impacts our body is it, it sort of dysregulates that normal development for us. And so then we, our bodies are dealing with stressors that are much bigger than what we can handle. And so those natural processes that we have to regulate and to grow and to learn get disrupted. And so how it affects us, it affects us in our growth in terms of, you know, kind of our, how our nervous system is developing, how our, we're developing social emotionally, all of that. It sort of throws off our cues for safety and trust. Mm-hmm. And then when that is disrupted, then it can become really hard to just kind of enter into your world and your life in ways that allows you to be open to all the experiences that we're supposed to take in and learn from. I would say to the other thing, and you know this about me, I'm a big fan of learning about the adverse childhood experiences study. And what that study has shown us is the impact on our overall health, how traumatic and stressful life experiences, especially in our early life, actually do disrupt our normal development and create different sort of internal rhythms for ourselves and internal processes that actually raise our stress response in our body that make us more immunocompromised, which means our immunity is not what it should be. And then we actually end up sort of developing a tendency to be sicker. So how it affects our bodies is it it just makes us sicker. It makes us sicker in ways like where it reduces our immunity. And so we're 
prone to catching the colds and the flus and the, you know, all that stuff, but it also raises our immunity in terms of developing things like asthma and allergies. And, and then later in life, unfortunately, it can get so severe that we develop things like heart disease and liver disease. Yeah. So it can be very problematic. I start to kind of talk about those things and then I feel like it's a real bummer, right? But mm-hmm. it's also the thing that because we know how it affects the nervous system, then we can also find ways to help re-regulate the nervous system and help reset some of those responses so that people can actually heal from that and then jump right back in to their lives and to ways that their body isn't quite as impacted or carrying around that stress load that then will make us sick. So we can, there's a way back to health too, Yeah. but it is very worrisome to think about how much stress can really affect our bodies. Yes. I remember when I was studying for my licensure exam and there was a question that said, what are the consequences when you experience chronic stress? One of the options was you get used to, and that's the one I chose because in that moment, Uh getting a higher degree requires this chronic (laughs) stress in a way, right? So Mm -hmm. I was like balancing studying for that working and all that. So I chose, I think it was the B option that it was like, your body gets used to wrong. And I'm like, wrong. (laughs) And it's like, no, it's detrimental to your body. And it was like, I think it was the first time that I actually heard it. Yeah, It was when I was studying for my licensure, you know? So it was like, wow, wait, what am I doing? And that's when I started like, how is this go, go, go mentality and getting my because I did it like really fast and five years, the PhD got me to like, wait, stop. And Mm -hmm. after that, then my own immune system kind of went, okay, <laughs> now I can show you all, all of it back. Buddy. Well, you know, and there's a, the, I mean, I think it's like, I'm so glad you raised that topic because I think what you're talking about is that meeting point of there's a, such a thing that we now classify as toxic stress, right? Yes. And so that's the toxic stress, the stress that is very sticky that you know really starts to impact our neurobiological, our physiological, our biology, right? As I said, we're made to tolerate stress, right? Okay. It sort of drives us in a way, mm-hmm. it's like that challenge mentality that helps us sort of rise to the occasion. Right. Um, so long as it is within our capacity to do, right? Right. Like we can take on a lot, but there is a point where that level of stress on a chronic persistent level then becomes toxic. We are made to sort of rise to the occasion and take on the challenge and then have us enjoy that for a little bit. Right. And then take on the next thing. We are taking on too many things chronically and persistently over a long period of time. Then that stress can become toxic to us. Yes. And it's such a hard because this country in a way kind of promotes that hustling, work hard, play hard and all those kind of things. And in Mm -hmm. many ways, people feel the pressure. And then we add the factors of immigration and all these others that it kind of becomes like a normal. Mm -hmm. When you bring people into this consciousness, what I've had with clients and they go like, wait, but I have to make money. I have to do this. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's such an important topic and going along. You know, if I can interrupt you really briefly. No, no. Yeah, definitely. I think that when you say that, I encounter that also a lot with my Latino clients, you know, because culturally we are raised with a work ethic like no other you have to work hard yeah and so the work ethic 
is something that is very dear to us culturally. Like, hay que trabajar, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that that piece also, because we come from a culture that is a culture that is very rich, but also is very immersed in our identity is really about a warrior identity. Yes. <laughs> you know, like you go after it, right? Yeah. But I think that even then that's really doing us some harm. We're not allowing ourselves the rest and restoration that we need to continue to do the work. And that's the piece is that rest and restoration. And going along, What are some of your go-to techniques or skills to help manage that? Well, you know, we've been talking about the training model, the trauma resiliency model. We have some, some body-based sort of wellness techniques that we talk about, whereas really giving the body the break, giving our nervous system those opportunities to reset. So my go-to methods are those methods, helping people, coaching people, helping them develop a better capacity to give themselves those breaks sometimes can be very brief, but sometimes much more is needed, right? But really giving ourselves those breaks to allow our nervous system to register and take some time to savor and take in moments of rest, of calm, of joy, of peace, of enjoyment, of comfort. I think one of my more recent practices has been to help people really tune into like Sometimes joy is a high ask for mm -hmm. people, yes. particularly people who have had a lot of trauma in their lives. But even just like what feels comfortable or comforting to you in your body? Why do we all have that favorite item of clothing that feels cozy and warm? Why do we love to get into our sweats at the end of the day? You know? <laughs> or um, during the whole day. Oh, yeah. Like walk around in like yoga clothes, yes, right? Yes. Things like that that are very minor but are about tending to our bodies and our comfort and helping us experience just that moment of letting go yeah. of the tension, of allowing ourselves to just give yourself a moment to experience that little bit of comfort and peace. Um, yeah. so those kinds of methods that can be very important to help someone deal with that trauma piece. But the other piece that I you know, rely on heavily and I think is so, so important is connection. Another piece maybe I did mention in my intro is that attachment work is very important to me. And attachment work has to do with that bonding that we have, that secure bond where we experience safety and nurturing with another person. I think connection is very important to help deal with trauma. A lot of people are walking around feeling very wounded and traumatized and also feeling very alone. And the idea of having someone, anyone, even if it's a pet, or a mascot that you can feel bonded and connected to and that helps you feel not alone can be very important to help deal with trauma. Yeah. So I work a lot with just having my clients feel really supported and connected to the people around them, but also in our interactions. Yeah. Yes, yes, a lot of it is that restorative experience with another person. Mm -hmm. And something that I wanted to say in terms of this amazing techniques that the trauma resiliency model offers is something that I have noticed in my life is after taking the model and kind of applying it, I have noticed that when I do presentations, I am so much more grounded. Mm. Like most recently last weekend that I did that panel, I was so, even though I was nervous before going in. In the meantime, I was able to kind of ground myself really easily with my, I think I had my phone with me because I was going to use it for a timer. 
And then I just hold on to that and hold on to the mic. And it was like at ease. And it was, how can I get it back with those grounding techniques? And that's something that I have noticed the most besides offering the techniques to my clients is like in myself, mm-hmm. even when I'm getting triggered by a situation in the moment, I'm able to kind of hold on to something that's my usual or press my feet down so uh-huh. I can feel the ground and orient myself to the room and all these kind of things are great techniques. Yeah, and we tell our clinicians all the time that when we're at trainings that these are wellness techniques. There's nine different skills that are part of the model. Six of them are wellness techniques. Mm-hmm. There's really only three of them that are that sort of the clinical right. tool that we use, right, to help yeah. we process trauma. But because so much of the model is really focused on our resiliency and our wellness, what we say to people is these are important even for self-care right? Yeah. For us to be able to continue to do the work. And I have to say that I did watch a bit of that video of your presentation. Yeah. And you look so poised and composed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm actually really surprised. Yeah. But I definitely would give credit to getting all these trainings and also getting more in tune and being authentic with me and all that kind of stuff. But definitely that because I was so nervous the days before I was never I haven't been that nervous to something in a long time. And uh-huh. I remember going in that I'm like, Oh my God. And then I hold on the mic, the phone, the share. And it was like, I was in it. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's helped me a lot. I do all these trainings and um, talks yeah. often. And I find myself too, that it's yeah. very helpful to me to get in front of a whole group and teach and train mm-hmm. when I have ways to keep myself grounded and resourced and that I can help myself sort of shake out the jitters because yeah. our nervous systems are always working for us, right? Yeah. They're preparing us for whatever it is, whatever the situation is. Again, preparing us to rise for the occasion. But when yeah. there's so much charge in there from our nervousness or anxiety, then that's going to keep us from performing ideally or doing what we would like to do in that situation, right? Yeah. And so yeah. then if we can lower that charge for ourselves, then it drops us into, like you said, like I feel like more like myself, more confident. Yeah, because um, yeah, I'm more in that parasympathetic kind of rest-ish digest mode. And I think what's great about that is like, you know, it works for you and me who are doing talks and trainings and interacting with people on that level, but it also works for our clients. Yeah. Going through their daily lives, Mm -hmm. right? Whatever task. Yeah. And even with this amazing six wellness skills, when you apply it in the session or clients or they learn it and they can apply it outside. I love that now I have a tool that I can be like, okay, most likely they're not going to leave triggered. Like right. I'm going to be able to do something and I get that feedback. Oh, I feel so much better right now. I feel much relaxed. And yeah, because I think it's really important how the model talks about the whole experience that when people are retelling the story, retelling the situation, how they can go into those mm-hmm. modes again, and that's not necessarily healthy. So mm-hmm. how to help them pause and kind of in that moment, apply some of the wellness skills as a way to regulate their nervous system and not kind of perpetuate those neuropaths. Right, right. Yeah. It can be very dysregulating, even when you're with someone who's supportive and listening intently to you, to really go through that again. And then yes. the more we go through that again and again, the more hardwired that, that neural pathway is, as you mentioned. And to help someone support them in this resilient approach way is yeah. to give them those pauses, to give them that support in that moment to help their nervous system down-regulate to the here and now can be very helpful because it gives us the sufficient wherewithal 
to move forward in that story. Yeah. And if someone is listening and being like, what's my nervous system? What is this, what we're talking? How can we kind of make it thinking like in a way, like what are the examples that you use with your clients to explain that? Oh gosh, great question. Let me think. In our trainings, we often talk mm-hmm. about it in terms of like giving it the metaphor of having it be like a car, right? And so the yeah. accelerator and the brake, we talk about that piece. Yeah. And that's obviously sort of an oversimplification of a very complex process, right? Like, I think all of our neuroscience experts would be like, oh my gosh, that's like way too simple, right? Yeah. For my clients, it makes a lot of sense to talk about how the stop and go of our everyday lives, how that's driven by our nervous system, right? Our nervous system is like that vehicle that is like, you're pressing on the accelerator to get to where you need to go. But there also needs to be pauses so that you can abide by all the laws of traffic and avoid any accidents, right? Yeah. So it's sort of the accelerator and the brake. Yeah. We can talk about it in that sense in terms of the accelerator and the brake, how our nervous system helps us to Mm -hmm. get through and get to the situations that we need to get to Mm -hmm. is through that accelerator. But we also need the brake piece, which is also the brake can be seen as our parasympathetic response of our rest and digest. Right. And for those people who like even drive a hybrid, right? That metaphor even works even better. Yeah. Drive a hybrid and you come to a stop, things shut down. And what we're told that's happening during that time is that the battery is reserving its energy. I tell people that piece in terms of that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. It's like you're a hybrid. You need those points of stop to help preserve the energy and then to keep going, yes. charge the batteries. Another a metaphor that I've been using a lot with my clients in terms of helping them develop a wellness practice, mm-hmm. in the wellness skills, is to talk to them in terms of a metaphor of a piggy bank, right? Okay. And so that if we have a piggy bank, this piggy bank is our, our safety. In case of emergency, we all have a little savings piggy bank that if we need to break the little piggy bank for an emergency, we can pull out of there, right? But in order for it to have enough for us to pull from, we need to put into it. All the little change, the little pennies and nickels and dimes that you're getting back and forth, like you just have to put them in there regularly. Otherwise, you're not going to build a piggy bank. And so I talk to people about how we make our nervous system more resilient. Our nervous system resiliency, our wellness practice is our piggy bank. Mm -hmm. And so... If we're daily practicing wellness skills, ways that we can help our nervous system reset, rebalance, restore, get those momentitos of like rest and recovery, that's you putting in your piggy bank. Because when there is a stressful or traumatic experience that you have to deal with, then you have a reserve. You have that emergency situation that you need to get in from your savings to take care of. You have savings because you've been minding your nervous system and making sure that it's well tuned up for that. I love this example. I've never heard it. Yeah, I use it a lot with my patients to talk to them about wellness skills. I think culturally, we're really about the work ethic of like, you got to just keep going. You got to just keep going, right? And I say to them, in order to keep going, you have to also take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, In our trainings, we talk about having your resiliency mask, right? Mm -hmm. About how... People who are able to travel and go on a plane, whenever we're on a plane, the flight attendant gives us a safety talk, which is if you're traveling with someone who requires your help and we are in an emergency, you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first and then help the person next to you who needs your help. And that's very much a self-care piece for Mm -hmm. us. You have to sort of take care of yourself first Mm -hmm. so that you can take care of all the other people you're taking. 
Yes, definitely. Oh, great, great, great example. <laughs> Thanks. And, yeah. And something that is very dear to my heart. And yeah, some people were like, well, you should call the podcast something about trauma. And I'm like, I don't want to use the word. And then resiliency is that bounce back, but in a way it can come to like the pre um, situation of functioning. But I wanted to also talk about this creating new meanings and new transformations that can come from adversity. And that's why the name of the Beyond Resilience. So along those lines, have you had any experience of how people create new meanings or transformations after experiencing adversity? Oh my gosh, a ton, a ton of examples that always wow me. I can share with you a recent example of someone that I was working with in consultation. She was talking about a client that she was very concerned about who had had a lot of trauma in her life and was about to deal with a very difficult mm -hmm. family situation. But as the clinician, she was also carrying around a lot of that stress about that and how do I help her and what can I do? And one of the things that happened as we processed this through with these mm -hmm. wellness skills is what emerged from her once she was able to address the fear and anxiety that she had about her client and her client's safety was that she came out from that piece of work and said, you know, I feel really strongly that I raised her well, right? Mm -hmm. That in therapy, we are able to, that she was able to give her enough mm -hmm. of her own resiliency back that then she was like, you know what? I don't know what I'm worried about. She's a fierce young woman mm -hmm. who is going to be able to take care of herself. These kinds of things that I hear in sessions and in mm -hmm. consultations all the time where people are able to touch back in to their own fierceness, their own strength, their own survivorhood, their own resilience. And so huge meaning emerges from doing um, the trauma work and the healing in this yeah. way, because we are having a more embodied process that you sort of know it in your bones mm -hmm. in a different way than when we process things more cognitively, right? When we can, because right. oftentimes as therapists, I think we'll say things to people like, you're very strong and you know you can do this. And I think a lot of times people don't believe that. Yeah. People don't believe that about themselves, even though we know it and we really believe it and we share it with our clients to help them see themselves more like we see them. A lot of times if they don't feel it, they don't believe it. And this way of working with trauma helps you sort of feel it in your own body. So it comes from them and themselves. And the kinds of meanings that emerge are really meaningful and significant for people because what emerges is their own sense of strength and yeah. a newfound kind of hope yes. for, for themselves. Yes, especially in this world that a lot of times is kind of like the victimhood, which I think is an important step, but it's mm -hmm. not the end of, but a lot of times just stay there and then they get reinforced in many ways and people don't feel like they have that inner strength to move forward. But when they're able to have that new meaning that they were able to get that through and now they can do something else, it's really transformative, especially when it comes from them because that's yeah. when you know it's kind of true. And that's why I love about the model like when a lot of times at the end after they process, the new meanings come into their mind and they're like, oh, that I can just tell this person this. And it's like, yeah. wow, that's your meaning. That was not yeah. mine. Or that I, yeah. And. and so what we know about from other modalities, I'm trained in motivational interviewing, right? And mm -hmm. one of the, I remember one of the initial learnings about motivational interviewing is that you can't motivate people. They have to motivate right. themselves, right? right? People are motivated more often 
by a goal that they set for themselves mm-hmm. or something that they set for themselves. So mm-hmm. when you hear it in your own voice, you're more likely to believe it. Yes. yes. <laughs> and so I think that that really informs even this work that your therapist and us as therapists can wholeheartedly believe in our patient's capacity to do things in the world. Yes. But when it comes from them, then they go out and do it. Yes. Like the, your client who says like, I can just go and tell something tell that person that yes, yeah. you can. Right. And they do. Yeah. And so, that I think it's so important because many people kind of also want to just hear from others, this kind of thing. I mean, it's nice to hear that people believe in you, but mm-hmm. it's not until you believe in yourself. And that's more of an internal work. Right. Yeah. Do you have any further resources or recommendations that the listeners could benefit from? I think I've dropped it a lot throughout our conversation today, but Trauma Resource Institute has been transformative for me, my involvement with them. We offer, as I said, the trauma resiliency model trainings, Mm -hmm. as well as the community resiliency model trainings. So I think that that would be a great resource. Mm -hmm. In terms of other resources, gosh, can't really think of a ton right now. (laughs) No worries. Yeah. Yeah, but but if you think of more... Let me know and I'll add it in the notes. Okay, great. Yeah. And any favorite books or movies that have inspired you to keep on going during hard times? Gosh, well, so as you know, I'm a little bit of a, of a neuroscience geek. So I'm constantly reading like, I don't know, three or five books at a time. Most of them having to do with the trauma work. Recently, one of the books that, that I think has been very helpful in sort of the world of trauma therapy has been Bessel van der Kolk's book, mm-hmm. The Trauma Keeps the Score. I think he really did a lot for helping move forward more of the somatic therapy models and talking about trauma and how trauma is in the body. So I think that that was a very helpful book for all of us to sort of have. Some of the earlier books, like Judith Herman's book, and I really love reading early Dan Siegel's books were really helpful to me. Yeah. I think it was like the developing brain, which is one of his first books was really helpful to me. But again, you know, all of these are very sort of technical jargony books that me reading. More recently, I've started to read Deb Dana's work and Bonnie Badenoch, who I really respect and are lovely people and clinicians and make the work and their writings are very approachable and can kind of fully understand <laughs> the concepts that they're sharing. So those are great books for me. And in terms of movies, gosh, I don't know. Movies are tough because they can be very sort of in that vein of exposure therapy, you know, like seeing a lot of traumatic stuff. Yeah. So I can't say that I have a lot of movies that have inspired me in that sense. Okay. But I do love going to the movies and sort of an escape for me is part of my wellness practice to find fun movies that I can enjoy. I will say that one of the movies that I really enjoyed in terms of how it explains kind of how our bodies work was Inside Out by Disney. Yes, I love that movie. It was so lovely and it was so well done. But I'm such a crybaby with those Disney, you know, like they all make me cry. Yeah. uh, Because they're just so well done in terms of the the relationships, right? Yes. So between Inside Out and Up, I'm just a sobbing mess. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. And I know we're both also trained in EMDR and how yes. I describe from EMDR in terms of that memory kind of get it. 
isolated. Yeah. I use it inside out. I'm like, have you watched inside out? Okay, go and watch it because it <laughs> explains it amazingly. And then you yeah. have the visual. Yes. I watch most of those movies, those animated movies with my godson who is adorable. But he's always looking at me like, why are you so emotional right now? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Loving mess. So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think it might be a little traumatic for him to watch those movies with me. <laughs> <laughs> he might be like, what's going on? That's what is going on? Yeah. yeah. But those are really well done because I think of the attention to detail about those processes. Yeah. And when I started, I was not that drawn into this whole attachment because I feel like it was very psychodynamic and I steer away from it. And uh-huh. late, even talking about Freud in my sessions and I'm like, what's going on with me? Why am I talking about the conscious and unconscious, but that part of attachment? Because I think it's so key because mm-hmm. how I'm seeing it lately, I don't know if you're going through that as well. Something that happened in one of my recent, this week, it was, I was thinking about it and I'm like, it's all response of a threat. This is all about a stress response in terms of like the anxious attachment versus the dismissive that in a way could be looked like they're not, but they're really in a way avoiding all that. And I was like, wow. It's the safety in relationship that when a situation feels unsafe, one thing, but then when a person feels unsafe, I think that is a stronger, more emotional sort of experience for us when a person feels unsafe, especially when it's a person that should feel safe. Right like a parent or a caregiver or a significant other. So the attachment piece is huge in the trauma work that we're doing because it is really about safety, right? Anytime we feel traumatized, it is because we felt in some way intruded upon or that we were unsafe in a situation. Unsafe physically, obviously, but then even sometimes unsafe socially. For people who are socially mean to us, that piece in terms of the shame and experiences of feeling publicly humiliated or embarrassed experience is very traumatic. Those are the kinds of things that lead to phobias of public speaking and things like that, right? And all of that is really about safety and relationship. Attachment becomes really central to work in in trauma because it's about just basic safety with another person. Yeah. And I like how you say how we feel because a lot of people go like, well, that was not traumatic. That was not that loud. Or we just keep on going. Like I got hit as a kid and I'm fine. And all this kind of lingo and people are talking, but it's more about how individually you sensed it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is from Maya Angelou. And I think I somewhat get it wrong sometimes where she says, People may not remember what you said and people may not remember what you did, but people will remember how you made them feel. And that is sort of a a guiding principle for me in terms of the therapeutic work I do. If we're helping guide someone through healing from trauma and what we're doing is triggering them, how are we making them feel? Are they feeling about therapy? Are they going to want to come back? (laughs) Yes. So the idea of feeling safe and nurtured by someone in that therapeutic relationship becomes so important because Maya said it, people will remember how you made them feel. Yeah, it's so important. And we're at the last question, but thank you so much. It's more about how can the listeners follow you? How can they contact you if they have any questions or? Well, I have a website that I probably have to update, but I do have a website. You can find me at resilienceally.net. Okay. Uh, and I'll share that. Um, yeah. with and you. we'll put it in the notes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
You can also find me through the Trauma Resource Institute online. And I'm on Instagram. And I can't remember what my handle is on Instagram right now. <laughs> find me. It's a public profile. Yeah. Um, so you can just look up my name and you'll be able to find me. So yeah. on Instagram, I try. I haven't been the best lately, but I try to share some content about, you know, as I said, like I love to share new learnings in neuroscience. And so I like to share those kinds of things. You want to hear more from me? I will try to be better about content on my Instagram feed. Yeah. And your office is located in? I have a private practice in Eagle Rock. Eagle Rock. In Eagle Rock. Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay. It's uh, sort of in the northeast side of Los Angeles. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking about this introduction. Trauma, I feel so blessed that you decided to say yes and are part of our introduction to this amazing topic that we'll be talking much more later on. Well, I was honored to get your invitation and I'm even more honored to be the first one. I'm so excited. Yeah. And I'm excited for you. I think this is going to be a great endeavor and such an amazing thing to offer to the world. So I'm thankful and grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Beyond Resilience Life podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. If you like this episode, please make sure to review it and comment on it and share it with your friends and family. Until next time.